who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello, and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast. The fan podcast looking at the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Today we're taking a look at Dolph's most recent cinematic effort, Castle Falls. In this film, Dolph pulls double duty once again as he takes on both starring and directing duties. In this fun action flick, Dolph teams up once again with martial artist Scott Atkins as they portray two down-on-their-luck individuals who try to steal $3 million in cash that is tucked away in a hospital primed to be demolished. Yet, in addition to begrudgingly joining forces, our two unlikely heroes must also contend with the deadly gang who has arrived and is also planning on taking off with the loot. Skills? Degrees? Did a bit of construction back in the UK between fights. <laughs> We're in luck. They've been at it a week, but there's a couple days left. He says she's strong enough to accept the transplant. She can't do any more chemotherapy. She's very sick now. I got a proposition for you. I'm sorry, I don't make deals with inmates. Look, it's, it's money in it for you. How much? Three million. Cash. Everything's gonna be fine, don't worry. Three million dollars in a building that's gonna be dust inside three hours. Follow the guard. Find the money. I'm your host, Sean, and joining me once again to discuss this film is Mike Fury, author of the books Life of Action, Volume 1, and Life of Action, Volume 2. Mike, it is a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming back, man. Hey, Sean. Thanks so much for having me back, man. I really appreciate it. Well, this one, I mean, this was kind of percolating between us for a while, actually. I mean, I guess we should probably let the listeners know um, we are jumping way forward into the uh, filmography of Lundgren because this is, uh, like I said, this is the most recent effort from both uh, from both Dolph Lundgren and Scott Atkins. Um, this is one that, uh, yeah, both actors have really been hitting the, uh, the PR train 
pretty heavily and they've been promoting. So you can tell that this is one that, that they were very invested in. And so considering, I know you're also a huge fan of Scott Atkins. I know you're also uh, close personal buddies with the guy. I figured it really only made sense that uh, we tackle this one. So this is, this has been kind of, bubbling for a while i know uh when it was in production we were kind of bouncing messages back and forth about doing it and uh now that it's finally out here we are yeah man for sure no it's a super interesting one i, I really really love this film I'm a, I'm a fan of the film i'll be keen to hear your thoughts but i guess the the the, the big um the, the main one of the biggest hooks of anticipation for us fans is it's obviously dolph's uh first time back behind the camera in what nearly a decade or so yeah, yeah, over a decade. Yeah. So that was going to be my first point was yeah, it's it's really kind of cool to see um Dolph he he took a uh, what was it a 10 year break from yeah. directing films. So I mean if we go back a bit um it was back in 2004 he had his directorial debut which was The Defender and then from there he was I mean he was pretty steady and he was directing all of his films his next 5 films yeah. and then he just, he kind of quit. He did the expendables in 2010 and we didn't see him step behind the camera, which is really interesting. I pulled up an interesting fact for you. I don't know if you knew this or not. Okay. But if you look at his output from 2010 onward, he's been working quite steadily in front of the camera. And Uh I don't know if you've counted the number of projects, but if you look at from 2010 to today, he has almost 40 different projects that he's starred in in various capacities whether they're cameos supporting roles um major headlining roles you name it but in all of those films he wasn't directing so i wanted to get your opinion because i also have some theories on this but why do you think it took uh dolph so long to uh step behind the camera and direct a project that he was starring in again yeah i mean he he strikes me as somebody who and obviously i don't know Dolph personally but um you know having interviewed him in the past he's very passionate and very driven about the key projects that that take his you know take his interest and i think we can talk about how this one's um developed and he he took a very um a very keen kind of fatherly oversight on this project but i think that perhaps he just didn't have the project that he really wanted to sink his teeth into and as you say he he had some great opportunities over the past decade. He actually, apart from The Expendables, which is obviously a major franchise, his old friend, uh, Mr. Stallone, got him back involved in. You know, he had the opportunity to become involved in the Creed franchise and Aquaman and so on. So plus, you know, a a wide range of other, you know, independent films and TV shows and different things. So I think maybe, you know, he's he's been quite satisfied and quite busy is what that's what it appears like to me in terms of, you know, performing his duties as an actor and maybe didn't have the calling to get back involved as a director and a filmmaker, which is obviously a very, I guess, a very demanding task and very tall order in terms of the amount of time and commitment it takes from him. And, you know, fortunately, that did happen this time around with Castle Falls. That that's that's the impression that I got. Most definitely. I mean, you can't, I mean, and again, this is just my, my opinion. I'm just purely speculating, but you can't look at a project like Shark Lake. I know that's the one that I, I always <laughs> come back to in sites. So I do apologize, but you can't look at a project like Shark Lake or um, what are some of the more recent ones that he's done? The Tracker, uh, Acceleration. And I don't mean to mitigate or discredit these films by any means, but you can't look at those films and think, yeah, I bet you Dolph was sitting back in his trailer thinking, damn, I wish I was really directing this one. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. 
So, I mean, th- this particular film, I mean, before we really get into it and breaking down the, uh, the plot of it, um, like we're going to do, this one has, in my opinion, what I think is a really fascinating uh, pre-production and just overall production, okay? First thing, it was written by uh, Andrew Nauer. And I mean, it, I don't know if you've looked at uh, this guy's filmography. He doesn't have a heck of a lot under his belt. But interestingly, his screenwriting debut was the film The Last Stand, which happened to be Arnold Schwarzenegger's return to acting after a yeah. 10-year absence. So I thought that was kind of interesting that this was penned by the guy who did The Last Stand. And The Last Stand, I don't know if you've seen it. Um, yeah. it, didn't really, it didn't really do well at the box office when it came out in 2013. I think it's a fun uh, a fun movie, but yeah, that was, that was Schwarzenegger's big return to headlining a movie after he had been absent from, uh, from the movie business sure. for a decade. Yeah, no, I did. I really enjoyed the last time. Haven't seen it for a long time, but I remember it playing more like a Western as well as more so than a, um, you know, balls to the wall action movie. It, it suited that more mature Arnold persona on screen, I think. Yeah. 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 Well, and I mean, I remember hearing about this film. I mean, I remember hearing about it when it was in production and really getting excited once again. And there, there were quite a few things about this that um, if, if you're a fan of action, if you're a fan of Dolph and Scott Adkins, I mean, that is really going to pique your interest. So for me, it was not just at the, um, at the, at the thought of uh, Dolph and Scott Adkins joining forces once again, but like we said, it was the fact that Dolph was once again directing, but What's really interesting about the production on this one is once it started filming, production was quickly stopped due to COVID. Sure. Yeah. That must have sucked. I mean, I can't imagine for those guys. I've heard a a little about this from Scott and they've both been speaking about it in interviews. But, you know, anybody who uh, has had any level of experience working on like an indie level production, it's hard enough as it is you know, on a normal, on a normal day. I can't imagine that the frustration and the stress of, you know, the restrictions and being shut down with COVID, it must've been absolutely, you know, infuriating for those guys. Well, and I'll admit, I don't know about you, but I mean, I'll admit when this was shut down, I was pretty skeptical that it was going to start back up. Uh I mean, and and to be perfectly honest, I didn't think it was going to because I mean, pretty much all of Hollywood as we know it had shut down in various capacities. And a lot of these projects were just quickly just being scrapped and thrown under the rug. And so the fact that this film not only got to start back up, not only did it get to get to the finish line and we are talking about it today, I would say is, is kind of a miracle. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think actually one thing that lent itself to that, and it's funny to say this, obviously I don't in any way want to um, positively promote COVID, but I think the fact that it was a situation like this, as opposed to a running out of money, everybody, you know, shuts down, everybody goes home. If everybody went home and like Scott came back to England, everybody went back to their, their lives and started up on other projects that probably would have caused a more likely outcome along the lines of what you've just described. You know, it's, it's just not going to um, reform or it's going to be much more difficult to make that happen. But I think as with, with everyone having to quarantine, um, there was a lot of downtime, as I understand it. And what they what ended up happening, and I've, Scott's talked a bit about this, he's told me about this, is um, they spent a lot of time developing um, de- developing the, the ideas around the story and the character. Dolph spent a lot of time working with the actors, and this is when they were quarantining locally. Um, you know, where, where they were shooting the movie. So actually what it did was it lent itself to 
I guess, spending a lot more intimate time around developing the film than you would otherwise get. And then when they did go back to shooting, they had a much stronger sense of what they were, what they were hoping to achieve with the, with the shoot. Can you only imagine if, I mean, the exact opposite happened and then by, by the time the production started back up, uh, both Atkins and Dolph pulled a Brando or something like that. And they, sh- <laughs> yeah. they showed up on set like 40 pounds overweight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it wouldn't happen with those. I think those <laughs> probably a lot of other people that 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 could happen. But I think with those guys and they're you know they're um they're super dedicated to their to their conditioning and their shapes. I'm sure they'd be as much as the rest of us might be you know struggling to get motivated during during the the pandemic. I think those those, those guys kept a good head on their shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I mean something else else about this one that that's interesting is okay, the project starts back up. Okay, but it's still filming in the midst of covid so uh, and this is something that i heard um scott atkins say in recent interviews but the budget was slashed considerably so already going in when this when this was in pre-production this was already a um an indie film i guess we can say yeah but when they came back and they started it up well they had to suddenly adhere to all of these covid health protocols and so that right there cut into the budget considerably and so what we got and i'd be curious to hear your theories on this but what we got was a um a different story than i think what the project was initially sold on and Mm -hmm. so i I was going to read this because i think this is this is pretty interesting okay Okay. but when the film was being shopped around in its uh pre-production stage and when it was getting sales and whatnot in fact if you go on imdb and here in the states we have Redbox, so this is actually the premise that's also on on the red box screen okay but this is not what the film actually is so here's the premise that this film was uh that this film was be- was uh, going by when it was being sold okay uh 3 million dollars are hidden in a luxurious condominium known as the castle to rival gangs led by Deacon and Shay so this is Dolph Lundgren's character are after the hidden cash but before they can retrieve it the building's janitor Mike stumbles upon it the three groups are battling for the prize, but all are under a ticking time bomb as the building is strapped with dynamite to be demolished by the city. They have eight hours to retrieve the cash and get out alive. So, I mean, it's a cool premise. I'll give it that. But what we're given is um, something that is uh, a little bit different and a uh, uh, much smaller scale. I think we could agree. Yeah. No, for sure. And it sounds like, um, obviously, the, the idea of Dolph's character perhaps changed as well, which is quite important from his, I guess, where he's coming at it as a filmmaker, storyteller and an actor as well. So, I mean, th- that's one thing I'd, I'd like to know if these changes were done when COVID, uh, you know, when the production started back up, they decided to simplify this or if these changes were done before the production was shut down. You know what I mean? When they were all yeah. going in. I don't sure. know. Yeah, I don't know either. That's a really good good question. What I would uh, I wouldn't be surprised if as much as it seems strange to uh to 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 be kind of like messing with with scripts and plots during the shoot. I mean, to be honest, um quite publicly Stallone's talked about doing that on his own films and Expendables and so on. You know, he's literally rewriting the script the night before shooting the next day, like kind of tweaking and tinkering, I guess getting a a sense of the flavor and the vibe on set. Like, oh, this, you know, having done this particular 
series of scenes today, tomorrow, maybe I'm thinking it will be better to, to approach it this way. So it's quite possible that that could have happened in this case that um, Dolph's talked about being quite inspired by Stallone and other directors he's worked with as well. But equally, again, during this downtime that they had uh, when they were shut down and Dolph really having a chance to think about and consider the script and the characters and how they're going to interact together, you know, quite possibly he did go away and have this long extended period, this kind of unprecedented period to actually redevelop and refine the 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 script to make it a more intimate uh story a more dramatic story which then lent itself to working within i guess tighter budget and 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 a a tighter shooting schedule yeah well i mean but (laughs) again something else that you kind of have to look at and you kind of have to laugh at is okay if you look at the cover of this film okay so the cover that's on the um video on demand interface screens as well as the blu-ray cover the dvd cover so this cover that we are looking at is actually using the same art that the film had during its sales and pre-production. But what's so wild about this is it doesn't match the film and its tone at all. So if you look at the cover, okay, you have what appears to be Nakatomi Plaza. Okay. (laughs) It's this giant, this giant tower. You have these commandos wearing gas masks. And then you have uh, Dolph Lundgren who um, looks pretty grizzled and angry and pissed off. And he's also wearing these like aviator sunglasses. None of this is in the film, though. We don't have commandos and gas mechs. We don't have a um, a luxurious condominium. We have uh, an, an abandoned hospital, we can say. And Dolph's character is not this uh, this grizzled thief, but um, I guess we could say a down-on-his-luck fi- uh, father who is wearing yeah. uh, glasses the entire film. So it's just kind of wild to me that this film didn't bother. I, I guess it's a cool poster, so they just figured, eh, we'll keep it. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Actually, it's interesting. While you've just described that, I just checked that checked it out alongside the um, the English artwork, which I'm more familiar with. Um, so the US artwork alongside the UK artwork, it's actually it's almost identical. But one thing that's different is you guys got the commandos you described, and we didn't. So I don't know why the building's <laughs> the same, the shots of the two guys, the faces are the same. Um, we don't get commandos, and I, I feel a bit um, <laughs> I feel a bit upset about that. But um, I mean, look. I'm yeah I, I'm sure they just used the uh, the initial sales artwork but I think we all know from a from a sales and marketing point of view the um, the artwork is always supposed to <laughs> in the eyes of the people that create it it sells the film in the most commercial way and I think to have um, to have Dolph in his I don't know um, Dolph in his in his prison guard uniform and Scott with his uh, knapsack over his shoulder because he's been evicted <laughs> from his apartment. That's not going to be the most sexy action cover. No, no. Well, I mean, and going back to one of my previous episodes, I had the pleasure of speaking with um, the third lead in this film, uh, Kim DeLonghi. Yeah. And I remember speaking with her and yeah, she had mentioned just the restraints that the uh, uh, production was, was, was hampered with. I mean, you can only imagine having to, you know, maintain social distancing and, uh, you know, kind of adhere to these various health protocols and make a movie. But I remember her saying that, um, you know, her character has this wicked scar on her face. And I remember mm-hmm. her saying they had to change the hairstylists and the makeup artists virtually daily to kind of, you know, adhere to these protocols. Sure. And so that became a bit of a, a, a bit of a pain in the butt trying to, you know, make sure that, you know, they're also adhering to continuity in the film as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Man, no, that's, that's rough. I imagine, and you know, I think it's, yeah, it's so tough. I think the circumstances, 
um, they, you know, they had to kind of um, endure to get this made. And as, and as well as it turned out, and it's not without its flaws, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but it's a real testament to, I'm sure, you know, the organization and the professionalism of everyone on set and probably un- operating under the, um, under the leadership of somebody like Dolph as the filmmaker that really has to rally and champion everyone that they, you know, that the film turned out well. I mean, it's a very, very unenviable, un- uh, sorry, it's very an, a very unenviable series of circumstances in which to make a film in any situation and something like this, an action project with fight scenes and so on. I think it's, it's extremely tough. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think, I, and I imagine we're both going to agree on this level. I think one of the things about this film that really, really stands out and that really helps it come across as um, as accomplished and good as it does is the character development. I mean, yeah. and that's one thing that I just really, really appreciated. I mean, look, I've I've watched a ton of these independent direct-to-video action movies, you know, <laughs> in my day, we will say... And this is something that you just typically do not get in these films. So we have some amazing character development for the two leads that is, I would argue, pretty pretty much absent from a lot of the uh, the independent action fair. And I think a lot of this was on Dolph's behalf because, again, he, I mean, we and you and I discussed this last time when we were talking uh, Missionary Man a year and a half ago. But you know, here's a guy who knows the independent action genre. Uh, He's been in it, you know, virtually his entire career, I think we can say, and he knows how to do it right. And so what he does here in this film is he presents us with very carefully developed characters who you not only really get to know, but you really get to care about. And that's one thing that um, I thought was just a breath of fresh air. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree, Sean. And I think it's interesting. I mean, we've we've always talked about... um, Dolph's directing style, certainly on the episodes we've we've done together. Um, and I'm a big fan of his uh, as a director, uh, which I've, I've, I've mentioned a few times. Um, and on this, I think he really he really comes into his own in a different way. And, and perhaps it is it's that accumulated experience, but it's also that past decade working with some very experienced directors in this kind of career resurgence he's had. And um, what's interesting, which lends itself to what you've just described about the about the characters, I, I've watched this again. I've, I saw this. Um, a short time ago and I watched it fresh just you know in preparation for us speaking and um, a lot of, if you pay attention to the shots he's using it's very intimate and focuses I think his shots and um, the way he captures characters in these moments uh, on camera are very intimate and he really pays attention to emotions and expressions um, and around this it's interesting the music is very minimal and it doesn't try to over dramatize or orchestrate emotion and I think the the the, the viewer watching, you know, there's not like sad music, you know, over, completely over the top sad music to, to manipulate you into thinking the scene is sad or super heightened, crazy action packed, you know, eccentric music to, 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 to hype up a fight scene. It's quite subtle, but it focuses a lot more on expression and character. And that really lends itself to that, um, to that, that feeling that we get. So it's, um, it's really, really interesting the way he's, he shot this. Also, he, he did nonetheless get the chance to use some cool, uh, stylish shots like i don't know if you you remember the um quite a cool gliding crane shot which moves out of the window of the building to show the guys clinging on just outside uh-huh. the window I love that scene. Um, yeah so that's a cool a, a cool shot so i think what's nice here is he's using some really intimate kind of quiet considered shots capturing these moments of the characters but then there are some quite nice stylish shots used sparingly when he when he wants to i guess get a sense of excitement 
And look, I'm I'm just going to go here and I'm just going to compare it. But if you yeah. look at this film compared to anything that Bruce Willis has done in the past <laughs> decade, I mean, not only does, it, does this one stand head and shoulders above all of those, but you don't get in any of those Bruce Willis movies, you don't get this kind of um, that kind of care and that kind yeah, of precision yeah. and that kind of camera work in those particular films. No, those no, particular no. films are just, you know, simply paychecks where it feels like everybody there is punching a clock and moving on. This yeah. one we have, we have Dolph who, yeah, sure. It's an independent movie. And I think he knows that going in, but you know what? Again, I want to stress, this is a guy who knows the genre. He knows, you know, how to do it right. And he puts forth, the best possible work that he can considering the limitations that he has, you know, on his shoulders with regard to budget, shooting schedule, COVID protocols, all of that. Sure. I think, um, yeah, with the Bruce thing, we don't want to, I'm sure we don't want to linger on the, on the negative stuff too much. It's a real shame with, with Bruce to, to be honest, I do, I do believe that a lot of the, um, the crew, the filmmakers and the other people involved in the, the, the infamous Bruce movies we're talking about of recent years, they're not actually to be, I'll, I'll counter that. I don't think they're doing it just for a paycheck. I think a lot of people really want to be there. And actually, you know, a friend of mine had his, um, his, his, as a writer, he had his, um, his, his, um, like writing debut, writing feature debut uh, made with Bruce Willis very recently. And he wasn't on set, you know, he just wrote the script and it, it was, you know, the, the, the film was made as it was. But this film, I, I found out this, this feature was shot in eight days. And, <laughs> you know, t- to be completely honest, Bruce was probably there for one or two days, as we know that to be the case. And then what the other guys have to do, as passionate as they are and as dedicated as they are, they have to, you know, they, they then fill out the other, whatever it ends up being, six or seven days. And it's like, you just can't make a good movie that way you're re- well, you're wow. going to really really struggle and um obviously you know i think if there's somebody phoning in there it's clearly bruce he shows up for his one or two days and leaves but what we have here with what we're talking about is uh, with dolph you know we have a, a star and a director who's actually genuinely dedicated and he's going to put in not just the maximum amount of time he can probably more time and again during the pandemic he didn't just you know, drop off the grid. He didn't, I don't know, he didn't, he didn't, you know, go on vacation and then have some downtime and then come back when the, when the check came, came back and to continue the movie. He spent a lot of time in during the downtime period, speaking to the actors, having whether I'm sure they couldn't all see each other at every opportunity, but, you know, having calls, having long conversations. And when you've got a star, you know, the lead actor and the director um, that committed, and then somebody like Scott, who's obviously also, I'm sure following the lead of Dolph, he's, you know, gonna gonna step up as well, but he's also he cares a lot in his own right. This is a much, even though the film was shot in I think around seventeen days, which is again very tight. This is a much better, I guess, cauldron of ingredients in which to make. Even though, even though even though it's an indie film, even though it, they're they're working under extreme conditions, it's a much better set of circumstances. I think. Well said, Mikey. A cauldron of ingredients. I love that, man. Yeah, I just I just pulled that out of the ass. <laughs> oh man, yeah. No, that's great. Well, I mean, and I will say, I mean, if we are going to critique this film a bit, um, and and this is this is a small one, but I will say, I think the trade-off here, because I think with this particular film, Dolph had to do a bit of a trade-off. So again, he's he has these two lead characters who he has really given a lot of um, attention and detail to in terms of their characters. But there's a trade-off here, and this is with the villains. Okay, now if this was a uh, this is a bigger Production, 
Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, a hundred million dollar production directed by Michael Bay or, you know, whatever. Um, Then of course, I think all facets of this film would be covered and we'd be given character or excuse me, we'd be given villains that also have a lot to work with. And that also have character development here because again, it's a 17 day shoot. It's a limited budget. I think I could be wrong in this, but I think I read that the budget on this was like maybe one and a half million, which is, Uh which is pretty tight. So I think there was a bit of a trade-off there. And again, because we have such developed lead hero characters and all of the other resources that we're working with are fairly limited. I think what ends up suffering are the villains. And so the villains that we get in this film, I'm just going to say it are pretty one note and all we're pretty much told about them is they are bad simply because they are bad. We don't really, we don't really have much in terms of their motivations or anything like that. And to be perfectly honest, Eh, would I have liked a little bit more? Sure. But I also, I also understood it and I was okay with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I would agree with it. I mean, I'm always a fan. I'm a fan of good villains. So, you know, I, I enjoy, but I, I have to say, I think everybody cast wise, we can, we can kind of expand into this, but the cast, the cast were all very good. And, um, you know, even I think it takes a good actor, even if you get a limited amount of screen time, but to convey the correct emotion and to show the intent and everything and to do it convincingly and we buy it, there's no, there's no uh, weak link in the chain. I think that's really good. And what I actually liked alongside the, um, I, although I did like the villains, the character of George, if you remember as, as Scott's uh, kind of, um, you know, sidekick, who's, yeah. if, we, if we're going to go by the formula of <laughs> these films, we know he's going to be ill-fated. This guy, this poor George guy, is not going to meet a good end. No spoilers to anyone that hasn't heard it, but you kind of see it coming a little bit. But he's great. This guy, uh, the actor's called Vaz Sanchez. Um, he's great. And um, so I think, you know, as much as I would have liked to see more from the villains, we do get some, some sympathetic portrayals of some of these smaller supporting characters. Well, I mean, that's an excellent segue there because let's let's just look at the uh, let's look at the characters here yeah. in this film. So pretty much, at, you know, at center stage of this film is, you know, a large stash of cash that is um, tucked away inside this this big building, this uh, this old hospital that is uh, primed to be demolished. OK, yeah. and so all of the characters each have their own motivations for why they want the cash. So um, if we just look at uh, Dolph Lundgren's character first, he plays the character Richard Erickson. So here is a change. This uh, obviously his name and character motivations were changed from what uh, we talked about earlier Uh in in terms of the script, but he, uh, he portrays a probation officer who is uh, working in a prison. He also has a sick daughter at home. Um, His daughter is played by Dolph's real life daughter, Ida Lundgren. And she is suffering from what we're to assume is cancer. Uh, the doctor bills are piling up and her new treatment will not be covered by Richard's insurance. So Richard here, he's in need of a lot of cash fast and yeah. a prisoner where he, uh, a prisoner at the prison where he works tips him off to a large stash of money. I think it's over 3 million that is hidden at uh, castle Heights, which yeah. is this abandoned hospital scheduled to be demolished. I got a proposition for you. We'll be back to South Block. They're going to kill me if you don't. I'm sorry. I don't make deals with inmates. Take it up with the warden. You know, I can't trust nobody else in here. I need you to hear me out. Okay, we're done here. Look, it's, it's money in it for you. I'm talking a lot of money. 
Like, I'm trying to help you out. You got a family, don't you? Don't talk about my family. You got, you got a daughter, right? I know you want to help your daughter out, don't right? Don't fucking miss my daughter! I will say, and this is one of the things that I think a lot of the reviews are pointing out as well, uh, the chemistry that is on screen here in these scenes between Dolph and his daughter, I mean, this is wonderful because it's real. I mean, that yeah. is his real daughter there. Um, she, I think, is doing a wonderful job in these scenes. And I would also argue uh, in, in the scene where Dolph goes to the uh, car to kind of take that phone call and everything, this is, I think, some of Dolph's best acting. And I think a lot of this is because, again, this is his daughter really on on screen. And I think, I'd like to think at least, that he's pulling from a place. He's pulling from a personal yeah. place where he's thinking, okay, what would he do in this situation if this was if this was real. And so I, I, I loved that aspect. Yeah, for sure. No, she's, she's really great. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's all of these performances, including, you know, Dolph's in, in these scenes you mentioned, but also his daughter, they're very naturalistic, played very straight, believable. Um, another interesting influence of Dolph that I've heard him talk about quite recently is Clint Eastwood. And we know that I'm a big Clint fan. We know that he uses very few takes as a director. So it's, I think the, with the intention being not just, keeping to a, a tight schedule but also very naturalistic you know maybe one or one or two takes and, and move on and obviously you do need to be well rehearsed and confident in the type of I guess the type of performance you're delivering but yeah it would feel like Dolph and his daughter really captured that very natural uh, father-daughter uh, chemistry and relationship in those scenes and it really translates. And there's a really fun, I don't know if you saw this or picked up on it or not, but there's a really fun meta touch when the camera lingers around his daughter's uh, bedroom. The family photo that is in her room is, in fact, Dolph, Ida, and uh, and her mom, Dolph's ex-wife at the time. So mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of cool that he oh, employed cool. <laughs> an actual photograph. Yeah, that's cool. No, I didn't. I have to, I have to go back and, and, and look, watch out for that again. And then if we look at uh, Scott Atkins' character, okay, so Scott Atkins, he plays uh, the character of Mike Wade, um, who is a down on, uh, what is he, he's he's a down on his luck ex-MMA fighter, we can yeah. say. Um, he's struggling to find work. Um, he does land a temporary gig working on the demolition crew for Castle Heights. And so while on shift, Mike finds the duffel bags containing the three million. What's interesting about this character here is one th- another thing that I appreciated about this are the opening scenes where we see this Mike character in the gym practicing MMA. And so what this does, I, I have to believe um, Dolph threw this in purely because it makes sense. I mean, you know, it's funny if if we if we could if we could go back real quick. I watched it was about maybe a few weeks ago. I gave the movie Sudden Death a rewatch oh, yeah. Yeah. with Jean Claude Van Damme. I love the movie. I love it. But what's interesting about it is you're watching it, and Jean Claude Van Damme plays this uh, this former firefighter, and so which is fine. But then you have these scenes where he's throwing these kicks and he's kickboxing and whatnot. You know what I mean? And so it's yeah. like how does a firefighter know these martial arts here? And so, and so I can only wonder if this was thrown in, because I mean, if you think about it, you could take out the scenes of Scott Atkins in the gym. And I think the film is going to play just fine, but I have to wonder if these scenes were put in purely to make sense narratively, how and why Scott Atkins character was so skilled at the martial arts. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think you're right. It um, it plays into that believability. And although this is, I get you know, it's it's an action picture. 
uh, it's played very dramatically straight, I would say, and it's believable. There's a realm, there's a real sense of believability, even in the action scenes later, which we'll talk about. But it definitely adds authenticity that we understand. Of course, we as an audience, if we watch a Scott Adkins film, we're probably going to assume he's going to kick someone in the head. But yeah. as a as a character, <laughs> it makes sense for us to see the capabilities he has. It also lends it it front loads the action a little bit, if I may. I guess, critique that, that I think apart from those scenes with Scott, the actual action involving Scott and Dolph in the building probably happens about 30 to 40 minutes into the film. So from a, um, I know that from a business kind of um, a commercial point of view, they try to pepper some action at the start to get people's attention as depressing as that sounds in this, in this day and age, because we have shorter attention spans, as I understand it. I don't fully relate to this myself. I'm just saying this is what, you know, this is, this is how it is in the world. Now, if you watch any uh, Netflix series or Amazon prime and so on, they always, they try to, put things at the start even if it was a short action scene or short fight scene or something so it probably ticks that box uh, also interestingly scott i believe actually edited those um the fight scenes in the gym himself so um so that was that was cool that's something that he he was able to do himself and of course we should we should um give a shout out to tim mann who's a great fight coordinator who scott's worked with a number of times um on various great number of projects from ninja 2 to undisputed 4 um but i believe Dolph hadn't actually worked with him really in the past. So it was Scott, I'm sure Scott brought Tim to the table and, um, and it worked really well. So you've got a, a cool fight coordinator in the mix too. Well, and I've, I've said it before. And so I just like to reiterate it once again. Yeah. I honestly think that Scott Atkins is easily the hardest working individual in, in the movie business today. Yeah. And when he's on screen in these fight scenes that he has in the film, I mean, man, you can just see, that he is giving it his all. I mean, and that's one thing that I appreciate so much about him is even in the films that are very, very small or the films where he's taking on smaller supporting characters. I mean, you can just see that the sweat that is on screen is real from him. Yeah. I mean, he just, he puts forth nothing but 110% in everything that he does. And so in these yeah. fight scenes, the physicality that is on display is just amazing. And so that was something else that I think was welcome. Yeah. And I can, I mean, I think we've, we've talked about it before, Sean, but I can give not an expert insight, but I'll say that I have, I mean, I've worked on a couple of films with um, Scott as a, as a stunt performer and yeah, it's hundred percent seeing him up close working as much as knowing him, you know, having a conversation is one thing, seeing him on set, doing the fight scenes over and over again. Yeah. hundred percent. He's the hardest worker in the room. Cause you think even all the, you know, the, poor stunt guys that are <laughs> getting battered not for real of course but you know in the within the fight scenes or all the various you know the, the 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 tall order of all the all the people other people involved in the project scott's having to do the full fight scenes himself as the lead he has to carry the majority of that on his shoulders so yeah he's definitely 100 percent the hardest worker in the room when it comes to these types of films and I think, I mean, and I kind of got this vibe from looking at some of his more recent interviews. I don't know if this is something that you can speak to or not, but I, I've kind of gotten the vibe that because he is such a hard worker, he almost commands and expects that same kind of hard work from everybody else on the production. I mean, because he, again, kind of like Lundgren, this is a guy who, sure, this is a smaller film, but you know what? It's still a film that is still putting food on the table for hundreds of people in terms of the actors and the, uh, the, the catering crew, even, you know what I mean? And so yeah. I think, I mean, is it fair to say that when, when he's on set, he, he expects everyone to be on their A game? Yeah, I think, I think so. And I think that's, that's fair because 
for a couple of reasons. Firstly, he's having to he's having to take the majority of that on his shoulders. As I say, you know, nobody nobody there, even the opponent or even you know a, a henchman he might be fighting or something like that. This guy might have a tough job, but he's got the hardest job. So, you know, he he's never asking um, never asking you to do anything greater than the task that's asked of him. So there's that aspect. But also, you know, I think he's he's very aware of, you know, he has a brand and he has a, a, a um, he has a kind of a I guess a star appeal that his his fans want to see. So in the past, and this hasn't happened for quite a long time now, but if you go back a bit earlier in his uh, filmography, you might spot some films where, although you've got, you know, a big action star like Scott Adkins, you might have a, a lesser known fight coordinator or somebody that's not, not necessarily very good or doesn't bring the right elements to the table that would be required for a film like his. And one thing that he's, he's done more recently, or one change that he's made is um, he does bring on his own fight coordinators uh, from time to time, maybe not on the, on a, on an Expendables or a Doctor Strange or something. He wouldn't necessarily do it on that, but I guess on the leading film, um, you know, he would quite rightly say that he wants a Tim Mann or, a, you know, somebody somebody of that caliber to uh, to handle the action duties because then he knows, he knows as a, as a, not just an actor, but as an athlete, as a performer, he's in good hands. He's going to be well looked after, but also the action will, you know, play to his strengths and it will be something that he can be proud of. So, um, so that's very important. But yeah, no, he does, he 100% takes a, a, a very professional approach to, to his films. And he, I think he just asks the same of everybody else. That's, that's all it is really. Well, if we, okay, if we just quickly look at the other characters in the film. Um, so then we have our, our villains. Okay. We kind of talked yeah. about them, but yeah, we have this gang of thieves that's led by actors, Scott Hunter and, Kim DeLonghi, and they're there to retrieve the money. I, I think if I read this right, because they do kind of they do kind of muddle this a bit, or, you know, just to kind of get us to the action quickly. But if I understand it correctly, they were members of the crew to which the prisoner, the one who tipped uh, uh, Dolph off to the to the cash early in the film, they were all part of the same crew that uh, that, that that hid this money. But you know, I will say especially with regard to Kim DeLonghi, you can tell that she is having an absolute blast in this role. And she is absolutely great. Like we said, she's sporting this uh, wicked scar on her face, which is kind of a cool little character touch. Unfortunately, not much time is really given to this detail or any other details for that matter pertaining to the villains. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, there is that sense that it's been cut out. One thing that's interesting uh, that that this film plays to and is a way to develop those relationships, I think, is quite often in in these types of films we're really used to, and even if it's a a subconscious thing, but we're conditioned to the idea of, like, nameless, faceless goons, you know? And as, like, for example, the the John Wick franchise, which I'm a huge fan of, just a, a very super brief segue into that how many guys does john wick kill and nobody seems to care he's just tearing through wave after wave of people whereas here in this film obviously it's a much smaller crew but when somebody is you know thrown down the elevator shaft or shot or kim delonghi's character cat when she you know some something happens to her which i don't want to spoil but these things happen there are such strong reactions amongst the other characters that suggest these guys are friends they're a close-knit crew they're really tight and so even if it's, it's, it's interesting, even if you don't get the, you know, the same time or the same, um, you know, the, the, the focus in the script that we'd like, or at least captured on camera that develops those relationships, just the reactions we get, you do get a sense of more of a sense of the value uh, of these, you know, the, the, of, of, of the characters within their crew. And I think that that brings an extra a dramatic weight as well. Yeah. 
I agree. Well, and lastly, okay, I want to I want to just mention it because I think it is so important yeah. is um looking at the fourth big character in the film, which is the setting. Okay? Yeah. Uh the the setting is this abandoned hospital. Now, obviously, it is not a luxury condominium that the script was initially sold on. So, but I would say, you know, considering the scope of this production, I think the the setting works. I mean, yeah. it's an abandoned building that is ready to be demolished. And so what we have here is essentially a half-built set, okay? But I think, I, I think it works, okay? Again, this is, you know, uh, low budget. You know, they have those only 17 days to shoot. So I think a, a half-built set that we are to believe, believe ostensibly is going to be demolished here, you know, <laughs> in yeah. the next day. I think that uh, that works. And, you know, and I've I've said this before, and I don't know if, if you'd agree with this, but I honestly feel that with any confined thriller movie, okay, any film that is going to take place in one single solitary location, I feel the setting is key. And you really need to establish that setting as being a uh, a character in itself. And so, for this particular film, I think the I think it works. I mean, for this being a abandoned building where all of the action is going to take place, what we get are tons of exterior shots of the building where the camera is really uh, lingering on this aspect, which I really like. I mean, I hate to go back and you know compare this to a Bruce Willis film, but he did a film about a year, what was it, maybe a year and a half ago or so, called Hard Kill. And that entire film takes place in just some nondescript warehouse that yeah. is given no, no characteristics to it all. I think that's uh, you know pretty welcome here. Yeah, I mean... Um... Yeah, I think what what this does do is it plays, as I say, plays to the to the to the character of the building in a sense. Obviously, these guys have the opportunity to kind of wreck the building a little bit. Um, there's no, you know, they, there's fight scenes take place, some shootouts take place in these corridors, and we've got this impending sense of doom because the building is going to detonate in a limited time, and we periodically get this clock appear on screen. So it's an interesting dynamic that which does yes. it keeps the pace up and it adds a sense of urgency for these these guys basically need to get out, but what's standing in the way is all these villains. Right. What did you think? I wanted to get your take real quick because I had to laugh. What did you think of the name of the construction company? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> a homage to our, our main man. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I, I enjoyed that. I mean, so I, I don't want to spoil anything, but the name of the production company is Lundgren Construction. Yeah. So I just I just thought it was funny that this uh, this film was working with uh, limited resources, but apparently the uh, they they had no problem putting together this giant sign with <laughs> with Dolph's last yeah. name. I mean, it's not it's not the most imaginative homage. I would have liked a bit more of an Easter egg, something you know, something I don't know. Imagine like something Frank Castle or something kind of cool or there something unusual. But I don't know. It 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 it, it was a fun spot. You know, this film really reminded me of, and it's kind of a shame that uh, that it's been forgotten, but um, did you ever see uh, Trespass from the 1980s? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a, well, I mean, Walter Hill is my number one favorite director, so yeah, big fan of Trespass. This film is, is in, in a lot of ways, pretty much the same story as Trespass, you yeah. know what I mean? And, and Trespass is another one that... Uh, uh, has a setting that is a uh, a character in itself. Can I just say real quick, I know you're a huge fan of Trespass. If I may, I think in an, another um, forgotten 90s gem that I, I always like to watch in tandem with Trespass is Judgment Night. Have you seen Judgment yeah, Night? Judgment Night's great. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. That's yeah. a good double bill right there. There you go. There you go. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, and so if we if we look at the film, I mean, yeah, it it really does take its time setting up its two lead characters before the rest of the film takes place in this building. Okay, I mean, and so. I mean, this, this is a breezy film I mean, this is barely 90 minutes and that's yep. with credits. And so I, I'm trying to think, wouldn't you agree? It's about maybe 45 minutes before everything goes to the building and all of the action uh, unfolds there at that point. But it really takes its time yeah. setting up all of these characters. One of the characters that you mentioned already is uh, the character of George played by uh, Vass Sanchez. So yeah, Mike befriends a fellow member of the demolition crew, but um you know, I, I don't want to give too many spoilers, but uh, we'll, we'll just say don't get too attached to that character. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think what this does, and I guess this is a subjective thing that people, different people will take from, you could either say on the one hand, you know, to, to critique a little, as you say, it takes, what, 40, 45 minutes for the action to really take place within the building and for this, um, the kind of the, 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 the showdown between the different groups. But, you know, maybe on the one hand, it takes time to get that going. I didn't feel that way. I felt that actually with the earlier character development, we get a lot more invested. So by the time this comes along, rather than being like mindless, you know, action wallpaper with stuff happening for the next 40 or so minutes, we actually care about these characters. But at this point, we understand Dolph and Scott and and George and even the uh, the villains, maybe not as much as we'd like, but we get a, a sense of their their motivation and what's going to happen, but also their skill sets. Like, obviously, we know... Dolph can handle himself in a prison setting. He's a guard. He's not going to take any any shit, for lack of a better term. But mm-hmm. Scott, as we say, we've got his. We've seen his capabilities in the gym. We know that he's desperate and he's probably willing to do anything to get this money. So it's an interesting dynamic. By that point, we've 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 developed a lot, um, you know, relating to the characters. And we already talked. We already talked about it, but I just want to you know reiterate it once again. The fight scenes in this film are so well done. I mean, they are yeah. so uh, well choreographed. And I, again, I can't, I can't help but uh, think again, this is, this is on Dolphin Scott Atkins shoulders. Okay. Because yeah. these are two individuals who, you know, are pretty well versed in the independent action genre and they know what fans want. So they put a lot of time, a lot of care, a lot of precision into uh, uh, putting together these scenes. When I spoke to Kim DeLonghi, she said something similar in that, you know, they, the chore the choreography of these particular scenes i mean these fight scenes that we see in this film what was it she told me i think they took you know like six hours to rehearse i mean and that's something that you don't see very often in these type of films no i mean to be honest i'm sure sadly scott will scott would attest to this being kind of standard with some of his lower budget movies um but you know look with, with the the level of expertise he brings to it scott he he wouldn't choose to. He'd 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 rather have you know a longer period of time, obviously, to 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 develop the fight scenes and to rehearse and to really refine things. But you know, I witnessed this as as well on you know something like with the Green Street Three. I, I worked with him on that and Avengement as well. Um, sometimes these things have a matter of hours to you know for a particular scene. Um, not always the case, and I think Tim Mann actually did uh, did shoot previs as well. So they you know during that time they have a chance to to film and kind of map out the fight scene and then maybe adapt it or change it when they're on set, but they essentially have a blueprint to work from and Scott learns these things very quickly. But, you know, particularly for the stunt guys as well that Scott Scott will be fighting, they have, yeah, a few hours to learn this, but Scott's such a pro, he can do it so quick. But what's interesting as well about this type of action, obviously we do get the, I guess, the, the slightly trademark Scott, not so, not so many spinning kicks, but, you know, 
mixed martial arts inspired kicks, um, drop kicks, head kicks, and M- MMA takedowns and so on, which obviously works for his character being a fighter. Um, but there's also what I liked is quite realistically, there's like a clumsiness to it. So he's not portrayed to be like a complete, um, you know, an absolute badass in all these situations. These guys are obviously scared when the, when the gang roll in with guns. They're not charging headfirst into the gunfire, kicking everyone in the face. They're, they're running, they're hiding. And when they do have fight scenes, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of clumsy. And Scott at one point nearly falls down. He's, he's, you know, knocked back and he nearly falls down the elevator shaft before, you know, getting up and, and continuing the fight. And then he actually ends up throwing that guy down the elevator shaft. But there's like a, you know, the, the accidental kind of almost goofy clumsiness to it, which is more believable, I guess, in a, in a realistic fight setting that they're, they're not, you know, they're not a one. They're not a one man. They're not each a one man army. There's actually a, a, a plausibility to the action. Can we say is that? Would you say that's Scott Atkins' signature move? I mean, with Jean Claude Van Damme, he had the uh, the the three sixty spin kick. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. that was his signature. Can we can we say? I, I would like to think that Scott Atkins' his signature move is that drop kick that he does. It is well, just amazing I, watching yeah. him do that. <laughs> I guess his um is that what you the kick you mean the two leg drop kick when he kicks the guy down the elevator shaft? Is that is that what it's called where he well, he's I guess it would be like a drop legs. there is yeah. there, there is yeah there's like a drop kick he does that. I mean actually I think most people would say his signature kick's actually the guy of a kick which is where he spins he he spin he spins a full rotation, misses with the first leg, and then kicks with the oh, second leg. Um, yes. But I mean, that's, that's pretty that, badass. He, yeah, he doesn't. He, that's more of an undisputed Yuri Boyka kick. He doesn't. He doesn't do that here. And to be honest, it wouldn't. It probably wouldn't work in the in the believability they're going for. But but no, he does do. He has a lot of other cool signature kicks. He does, and yeah, the, the 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 drop kick works because I guess if you if you just imagine, and he's not a. He's not a short guy. He's quite a tall guy. The full weight of having somebody charge, run head for, you know, headlong into you and then jump with both feet towards you and hitting you at full, at full speed would knock you backwards. And that's what he uses to physically, you know, knock somebody right down the, uh, an elevator shaft, which is quite funny. But he's, you know, I think that's the cool thing here. They strike that balance of the action is the action works to the Scott Adkins signature style, but it's also, there's a believability to it. So they, they managed to get that balance. Right. I, I would say. And I do really like the, uh, the fight scene that, uh, that Dolphin Adkins get. I mean, yeah. you know, what's interesting and I, I've said this uh, on previous episodes, you know, Dolph had a, uh, a hip, a hip replacement surgery. So if you look at him when he runs, um, I don't think his running is, is his strongest uh, suit anymore, yeah, yeah. but, I will say when he throws punches and kicks, he still delivers on that front. So, and I mean, this is a guy who's in his, who's in his sixties and he can still deliver a, an amazing punch on screen. Uh, albeit being one that is fictional. Whoa, whoa, listen, listen, listen. I I left my punch card in my jacket upstairs, right? I came back here to get it. I'm I'm not with these guys. Okay. They killed my friend and they try to kill me. Okay. So you know what they'll do if they find us. Stay cool, all right? Okay, we're getting out of here, Stop it! Stop it! 
so I mean, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because the trailer uh, does give it away. But yeah, the two leads do eventually after, you know, they do kind of have their their scuffle, if you will. But they do eventually team up. Um, they decide to split the cash, but they need to fend off these thieves that are in yeah. the building, leading to some great shootouts around the building. You already said it, but I think one of the uh, great money shots of this film is the uh, the scene where the two of them are hiding from the thieves and, yeah. you know, standing outside the window. And they're both, yeah. you know what I mean? They're both tied up against the window. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool. What's really nice about that, as I, I enjoyed, is it's not just, obviously, the shot is cool. It's obviously like a kind of a crane that float, it kind of glides outside the window. Um, but it's also, it's when, when they look up, Scott looks up, up, up a floor and sees Dolph doing the same thing up on his floor. So there's like, and I think at that point, they haven't quite made an alliance yet. So there's like an acknowledgement. They're both standing there completely quiet, but making eye contact with each other acknowledging that they're both in this situation and both hiding from the villains. That was a fun, a fun moment. You know, I will say, I mean, as, as much praise as we're given this film, I will say, if you look at this film compared to, um, one of Dolph's previous directing efforts. I mean, yeah. I know there's uh, I know there's missionary man, which you and I spoke about, but then there's also the mechanic, which I think yeah. is, you know, one of his, uh, shining achievements. But sure. if you look at it, I mean, you can just see the huge um, difference in terms of budget. Okay. Yeah. Because if you look at a film like the mechanic, okay. And granted that one was filmed in, uh, in Europe. And then we have this one that was filmed, I think in Birmingham, Alabama. So right. I guess low location, you know, is a factor as well, but you can see this film compared to that previous film, just in the difference of 16, 17 years, how much the budgets have shrank and how much, cheaper this film looks than that one and i I don't mean to i don't mean to say that as a um to discredit it or mitigate it in any way but yeah i I think it's it's very evident how much cheaper this film is compared to the previous films that dolph directed yeah absolutely and i think that's unfortunately the state of the industry now i mean we know that to be the case with a lot of these it's funny that you know the um the big movies are still huge the blockbusters you might go and see but the independent and lower budget films have absolutely shrunk uh, in scale. And um, what, and it's, it's, it's a shame actually, you know, what would have compounded that even more and not helped even further is the COVID situation, the pandemic. So they kind of had this double whammy of, yeah, the budget's being, being cut, a smaller film than, you know, than, than they would like. What's interesting actually though is, um, although, and we, we, we talked about the 10 year gap since Dolph last directed and, and, and the last film was of course Icarus or as, as I know in the UK, uh, the killing machine, um, and I believe in some other territories that was the title, but I read that that was filmed. That that was another one which was obviously different circumstances, no pandemic, but the the schedule and everything was drastically cut. I read that they ended up shooting that in eighteen days, much to Dolph's, you know, uh, I'm sure he wasn't, you know, he wasn't thrilled about that. But if that was shot in eighteen days, and now we're talking about seventeen days for Castle Falls, that's obviously not a major difference, albeit the pandemic is another factor to consider. So, I think the key thing here is and you know, Dolph always maximizes what he does have. So I guess the most glaring ways that, uh, that, that, that Castle Falls looks smaller and cheaper and lower budget is, is the, the location or at least the limited number of locations, the size of the cast. It's a much smaller cast, probably crew as well. Um, and just the, the, the shooting time they had available. But would, would you agree, Sean? Dolph is, seems to always be super economical with what he does have and, and really maximize it in, in the best way he can. Oh, most definitely. Most yeah. definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say, and this is something that uh, um, my buddy Richard, who's been on a previous 
a couple episodes of mine. Yeah. You know, this is something that he uh, that he pointed out to me that I, I thought I heard it, but then I had to go back and watch it again. I do wish that there might have been a tighter script supervisor on set because there's a couple errors, and I don't know if you picked up on these or not, Mike. But um, I, I do have to mention them because they are kind of funny. So <laughs> there's a couple errors that I imagine they had to have noticed in the dailies. At least I would like to think they did. So yeah. one, I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but there's one scene where a character refers to Castle Heights as Castle Falls. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I, I guess you could, if you really wanted, I guess you could chalk, chalk this up to the, the mayor-elect's campaign to demolish and renovate the hospital. He was simply referring to Castle Heights as Castle Falls, but I doubt it. Uh, (laughs) I think that was something that that, that kind of slipped through. And also, this was something that really stood out to me. Also, at the end, we find out that the George character, uh, he has a a wife and family at the end, which kind of leads to a sweet scene with uh, Scott Atkins, but it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't know, pay off and make a whole lot of sense because earlier in the film, George was bragging about taking his paycheck to Alaska and being amorous with some Alaskan gals. So it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. but he has a, you know, <laughs> well, the elephant in the room, which we don't want to say is maybe George wasn't such a nice guy. Maybe yeah. we, we sympathize with George, but he was going to ditch his family and, and, and take the money and go. But no, I mean, um, I mean, yeah, those are, those, those, those are um, issues there that they probably, you know, sh- again, shooting the film out of sequence, didn't have a, a tight sense on the, on, on the script and, Lacking a script supervisor, as you say, would you know that caused those issues, I'm sure, and it would have been nice to to tighten those things up because it feels like in the grand scheme of things and what they did achieve, these are such minor details that could have very easily been fixed. Yeah. Well, if we okay, if we if we get to the end, okay, um, so we get some closure here. Um, it's it's I don't know if you felt this way or not. It's a nice sweet ending, but it also for me felt a little incomplete. And again, I can't help but wonder if because. This was being filmed during COVID. They simply, okay, had to just get to the finish line and put together what they were able to the best way they could. So we yeah. get uh, Scott Atkins, Mike character. He donates his cut to George's family, which is sweet, even though, like we said, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, nor is it entirely clear how Mike knew where to find George's family. Yeah. That was that um, was the big one for me. How did he find <laughs> But yeah. Well, I mean, I, I guess it is nice, and we do see the Mike character. He's uh, he's on his way to Alaska to find work, so we do get some closure for his character. Interestingly, though, there doesn't appear to be any closure given to uh, Dolph's Richard character yeah. and his daughter. So I guess I guess they were able to go through with the operation and the pricey treatment. Mm. Okay. I, <laughs> that's not yeah. – we don't get any closing scene of he and his daughter. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know what you mean. I guess it could have been, I would imagine, not not assuming that Dolph wouldn't have, of course, wanted to shoot those scenes or wanted to add anything there. Maybe it was simply a case of they, they ran out of time or they ran out of scheduling or, you know, somebody wasn't available who, maybe Dolph wasn't available, somebody wasn't available who needed to be. And they had to, yeah, they had to wrap it up in the most uh, like economical way possible. Well, okay. I mean, I know we've, we've talked about it. There's a lot about this film that we really like, but... Okay, Mike. I mean, you're you're a fan of. Yeah. I mean, you're you're a fan of it all. You're a fan of the you know the action movies, uh, Scott Atkins, Dolph Lundgren. So, and sure. you were like me in that you were following this film from its production, from principal photography yeah. all the way to release. So, all right, here we are. Okay, moment of yeah. truth. 
What do you think, Mike? Does this film get a recommend, uh, not just as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as a Scott Atkins film as well? What, yeah. uh, what, what, what do you think? Where do you stand, sir? I think, yeah, I would 100% recommend it. I guess it's really difficult because you kind of have to almost recommend it with a caveat because I feel like um, I would recommend it fundamentally, but it's like understanding these other circumstances probably make you appreciate certain things more or the circumstances in which the film was made. But no, fund- fundamentally, if you are a fan of Dolph, if you're a fan of Scott, I think you will get enough, um, you know, you'll, you'll get enough quality stuff from these guys that make the film worthwhile. And it's uh, it's nice to see Dolph back behind the camera. And as I understand it, he's kind of got the bug back now, I've heard him say. So, I, I you know, hoping that having taken this layoff, he's he's got the appetite to to do more very soon. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You know, I would, I would recommend it on, on all fronts um, myself. You know, I think we haven't really talked about it, but this is an awesome throwback to eighties and nineties action flicks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's some, you know, there's some real uh, uh, nods to that, that particular era of filmmaking, we can say, I would say the limited budget is pretty apparent at times, but like we keep saying, you keep going back to Dolph is a guy, Scott Atkins is a guy. These are two individuals who know how to effectively make the most of what's been given. And I think Lundgren in particular delivers a fun ride that doesn't overstay its welcome and in is in and out in barely 90 minutes. I mean, yeah. this is a quick film. Dolph and Scott Atkins have wonderful chemistry and I guarantee that this won't disappoint. And like we keep saying, considering that this was shot in the midst of COVID, what we have is a fantastic action yarn, action yarn that I think is going to please Everybody. It's going to please Dolph Lundgren fans. It's going to please Scott Atkin fans. It's going to please everyone who goes into an action movie and just wants to escape for 90 minutes and uh, and cap- you know, watch some cool fight scenes and be blown away. Yeah, so. definitely. And I'd, I'd just add to that, Sean. I think what's interesting is despite what these guys were able to capture – um, obviously on the day and the, on, on, the, on the shoot and the limited time they did have, as we know with these lower budget action films, so often the ways that they're let down is I think during post-production. So not even necessarily the script or the shoot, but it's things like, you know, the editing, special effects, music, and things that can kind of cheapen the film in a sense later. But Dolph almost always seems to completely avoid that. He's able to bypass all of that. So we don't get like corny edits, corny music, stuff like that. It it works well. And um, it's, again, it's very economical. It works to his vision. Um, So I think what's interesting, it's it's a a very admirable trait uh, as far as I'm concerned, even when he's working on these lower budget films. If you think about it in and amongst, Again, going full circle, the Expendables films, Aquaman, Creed 2, etc. Um, in and amongst all of this, and he'll go and do a shoot a lower budget film. He's approaching it just like a, he's a filmmaker. He's a storyteller. So he's he's you know, he's doing that authentically to the best of his ability. And that's that's a good a good trait for any 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 filmmaker, any genre, I would say, whether it's action or otherwise. So, you know, hats off to Dolph for what he was able to achieve. And I think, you know, if you're if you're a fan of these guys, you'll have a lot of fun with this one. Yeah. Well, um, before I let you go, we didn't get to talk about it at the beginning of the episode, so sure. I do I do apologize, but it seems like every time I have you on, you have a new book that is out to promote, um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm looking at them now, actually, uh, on my bookshelf. Yeah, I have sure. Life of Action, Volume 1, Life of Action, Volume 2. Um, these are awesome reads. I recommend 
anybody uh, who does not know about these particular books to please check them out. But um, what uh, what else is it that you're working on? Uh, what's going on? Are you at liberty to talk about any uh, of your recent endeavors? Well, it's kind of you to say that, Sean. And actually, please remind me, did we speak about Life of Action 2 last time? Because I can't remember in the chronology of also, you know, uh, the pandemic has kind of fried all our brains, I'm sure. When we spoke, had Life of Action 2 come out or was it about to come out? Do you remember the, the timing of that? So we spoke, if you remember, um, we spoke, it was, it was right after the world basically shut down yeah, <laughs> last yeah. time. So it was around uh, May of 2020. Okay. And yeah, the book had uh, seen a release and um, okay. I have a copy. You, you graciously autographed it for me. So thank yeah, you for yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this is an awesome book, man. I mean, you have interviews in here. I mean, as if you didn't have enough interviews um, in, in, in the first edition, this one, I mean, let's just run down the list. You speak with, um, let's see, uh, Tony Ja in the in the in the yeah. latest one. Is that right? Yeah, Tony Jaw's in there. Tony Ja, Frank Grillo. I'm trying to go down the list uh, of everybody that's in here. Um, uh, Zoe Bell, Amy Johnston. I mean, it's it's if you loved the first one, this one is it's it's first of all, it's thicker than the previous one as well. So, <laughs> yeah, actually, it's funny. There's um. I think there's slightly fewer interviews compared to the first book, but I tried to get more out of the interviews. So having longer, and as you know, you know, doing, doing your podcast and having interviews with people, it's all about time, right? So the more time you have, the more, hopefully the more substance and, and content you get. So, but no, it was, it was fun to, to embark on that again. It's a really, it's a really long and quite hard process in terms of doing those books, but it was an enjoyable process to go through again for the second book. And um, yeah, I'm glad it came out during the pandemic as well, which, wasn't ideal timing but hopefully gave some, some you know people like a an uplifting and entertaining uh thing to read uh, in in a way um but no the the response has been really good so i'd ho- i'd like to do more of this kind of thing in the future i don't know if it will be life of action 3 but maybe some something different in a slightly different direction but um but yeah I, i'm definitely keen to do more because the reaction's been so positive and i'm i'm grateful for everyone who supported so then if you know i'd say if you if you're interested in these films and you haven't um picked it up yet you know hopefully you can check it out and uh you know get, ca- catch the bug like me <laughs> Well, I know that this, I know that both books were yeah. very laborious processes on yeah. your behalf. I mean, I know you were working on these, so I'm not going to ask you uh, when Life of Action 3 is coming out. That's yeah. always kind of one thing. I, I always get the feeling that that always kind of pisses off musicians and whatnot when they're, <laughs> when they're on interviews. Uh, promoting their latest album, the interviewer says, so when's your next album coming out? Yeah. It's like, well, wait a minute. Are, are you at liberty to talk about any any other projects that you are um, uh, are at work on? Not right now. No, I mean I'm I'm working on some different ideas, and I'm you know look, I appreciate obviously there is a there's a fan base now kind of in a sense for this for the life of action format. But at the same time, I'm keen to do to try other things, and I'm obviously interested in other genres and other 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 stuff. So um, I'll keep it kind of vague, <laughs> annoyingly vague for now. But um, but no, you know I do appreciate everyone's support for these books and. Um, and yeah, I hope to do to do more in the near future. So you know, and I, I, I obviously, as I said before, Sean, I really appreciate what you do with your with your podcast, and I look I always look forward to. I've got some catching up to do though, based on what we've just said in some of the episodes. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm through through the pandemic. I think something that's kept us all going is like movies, but also books, podcasts, you know, YouTube channels and things like this. But where there's a, a sort of a frequent stream of content to keep us entertained, and I've also really enjoyed your podcast. So I'd like to say thank you to you for for keeping me entertained in these in these troubled times 
Yeah. Hey, no problem. No problem. Well, I, I sure appreciate the fact that you and I have been able to, uh, uh, establish this, this bond. And, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I, I always love looking at the various pictures, um, that, that you post regarding, cause I know that, um, you and, uh, uh our common friend, Ben Johnson, yeah, uh, yeah. recently have released, um, well, when this recording goes live, I'm assuming both episodes of the, uh, year end review, for Ben's yeah. podcast, the Kung Fu Movie Guide. And so I love looking at those photos because you guys always do it in front of your huge, massive Blu-ray and DVD <laughs> yeah. collections. Yeah. And so yeah. I look at that and I'm like, yes, someone else also appreciates physical media yeah, like me. Definitely. So definitely. So no, it's cool. Ben's yeah, Ben's a good friend, does a great podcast himself as well. So it's always nice to uh he usually for that he comes to my house, obviously all being well and safe, um, which we were able to do this year. And we've we've been doing this um this this end of year show for five years now so obviously it's it's very much it's his it's his podcast i have nothing to do with it but he kindly and graciously invites me back for the for the end of year show around christmas last year we didn't get to do it in person because the restrictions were much tighter so we did it on zoom but it was nice to um to reunite face to face uh for the show this year so that was that was a lot of fun awesome well, you have a, uh, uh, I'm sure we'll talk in the meantime, but hey, you have a wonderful uh, upcoming year, 2022, and yeah. uh, we'll be in touch and I look forward to having you yeah, back on because there's, sure. there's still plenty in the uh, in the Dolph Cannon that uh, need yeah, to be discussed. Absolutely. So. Thanks so much, Sean. I really appreciate it. All right. To everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews and... We'll see you all next time on I Must Break, this podcast.